Welcome to Gita Wisdom. I'm your host, Joshua Green. This is the um, second uh, conference call gathering. In a way, these calls replace those live gatherings we used to have at, at uh, Jiva Mukti, almost about nine years there. But those were sometimes proving difficult for people to attend because of distance or scheduling or whatever. So I guess there's, that's one of the advantages of being able to do it like this. Um, last week, that first experiment in doing live conference call gatherings was on the subject of how to keep chanting prayerful, you might say. And we reviewed um, the differences between what might be called religious music, which is music that attempts to reassure congregants with harmonious, positive fourths and fifths in the musical arrangements. The difference between that kind of targeted music and bhakti kirtan, which um, in kirtan we make use of unsettling chords, augmented fourths, often called tritones, which convey a certain sense of uncertainty um, higher rasas, if you will, that demand service without any promises of, of salvation or, or bright futures. So um, today we're discussing another basic principle in bhakti, um, namely food. And um, um, maybe if uh, everyone can mute their phones, because I'm hearing some sounds, some voices coming in. So kindly mute your phone if you're you're on the call. Thank you. Uh, so I'm one of those many people who got involved with bhakti yoga or Krishna consciousness through prasadam. Prasadam is the Sanskrit word for delicious, sanctified, vegetarian food. That was in London back in 1969. I showed up for lunch and I left 13 years later. Um... So the Gita describes something about how we are attracted to different kinds of foods. The, D, the Gita describes that the soul comes into the world and according to the degree of our material conditioning, we develop different kinds of tastes and interests, um, attractions, repulsions, and also palates. And in the later chapters of the Gita, there's a description of food um, falling into three different general categories of tastes or gunas, material qualities, um, goodness, passion, and ignorance. And there's uh, some logic to it that um, people looking to pursue a life of goodness or sattva guna um, will generally follow a sattvic diet, foods that are fresh, that are um, vegetarian, that are made from uh, categories of fruits and vegetables and, and grains, and um, that are healthy. And um, the other gunas are described as well in the Gita. And the description goes on to describe that taste, like other sensory experiences, tastes are subjective. 
what one person finds palatable or tasty is not necessarily what someone else will find palatable and tasty because we're each individuals. And that's true because the soul is a unique individual. So, however, there is one universal experience that cuts across all of those different material differences, and that's prashadam. Um, even hardened materialists <laughs> seem to respond to um, foods that have been prepared with love and devotion, with fresh ingredients and a careful blend of spices and herbs. And it takes some training to do that well, but the results really are astonishing. And a lot of people, you know, there people come to spiritual life from all kinds of backgrounds. Some people out of frustration with relationships, someone else from a bad experience with drugs, some people because they're very curious about the philosophy and the cosmology of, of the, uh, the wisdom text. Some people, like me, get involved because they get hooked on the prasadam. You know, it's balanced according to the Ayurvedic standards. I remember the first meal I ever had at the London Temple in December of 1969. I don't, I, to this day, I remember that meal. It was so savory and, and aromatic and, and, and exotic and, and um, dishes I just never, never tasted before. Um, Prabhupada, my teacher, and the person who brought bhakti to the Western world used to call uh, bhakti or Krishna consciousness, kitchen religion. Um, he began in 1966. Uh, when he came to New York at the age of 69, he was living in a small storefront with a tiny little kitchen area. And he would cook the meals and serve them himself. He would make rice dishes and vegetable dishes and all kinds of savory dishes, samosas and pakoras. And he would Share. bring them out, and people would be sitting around in this tiny little space. And it was probably, for many of them, the first decent meal that they had in, in years. Um, and uh, that kind of sacred food is an important part of our spiritual um, practices. So whether it's elaborate, for example, when when foods are cooked for offering to deities in the temple, the, the, the rules are very strict and there are a lot of them. Or whether it's something very simple when you're cooking at home. Um, the way that a meal is sanctified is really simple. It, it, you take a moment before consuming a meal to reflect on it, to breathe, to make a connection between the miracle of food and where it came from. Um, the formal way to do that is by taking the first portion of each dish. Let's say you've made a vegetable dish and a rice dish and a salad or whatever. You take the first portion from those dish, those three preparations, put them on small trays and place them on an altar. Here in my home on Long Island, I have a shelf in my room, like a library shelf, where I have a picture of my guru and poster of Radha and Krishna and some other um, sacred objects that I brought back from India and I have a small piece of marble and I put the tray on that marble and bow and offer prayers. And that pause 
that reflection is really all that's necessary to sanctify a meal. Um, that first visit to a temple back in December of 69, the cook back then was a young Scottish fellow named Digvijaya. And uh, I remember helping him in the kitchen one day and saying, uh, gee, it's really wonderful how, how you um, have such a talent for serving Krishna by, by preparing the meals. And his answer was really very beautiful. He said, I don't really consider myself advanced enough to serve Krishna. Um, I just like serving his devotees. That's a lovely mood of humility. And um, one day I remember getting up after a meal and trying to wash the pots to, to help out. And uh, one of the senior devotees in the temple named Tamal Krishna said, uh, this is before I was initiated, he said, Joshua, where are you going? I said, well, we finished the meal. I want to go help in the kitchen and wash the pots. And he got very angry. He said, you are not advanced enough to wash Krishna's pots. You should simply sit down here and have more prasadam. That was a good strategy, by the way. I remember dreaming of uh, someday being advanced enough to clean the bathrooms in the temple. Um, so not everyone is comfortable with deities and rituals and, and the formalities of that offering, but you can still be thoughtful about food. Uh, and if your life doesn't permit you to cook every meal, um, at least be very careful when you eat outside. The description of our discussion here today promised the following things. Um, a lively discussion, um, tips for how to integrate simple meals into your yoga practice, and practical uh, suggestions for spiritualizing your food. Well, okay, here's a practical tip. If you're going to eat in restaurants, be really careful. Uh, commercial meals are frequently very unsanitary. I remember twice since the 1980s having bouts of food poisoning from eating in restaurants. Um, when every restaurant you go in has a bathroom that features a sign posted on the wall that says employees must wash hands, <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> it tells you be careful. You know, these people have to be reminded to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom. Uh, so restaurant food is also not always very fresh or organic. It may not even be truly vegetarian. Something might be posted that way, but you're not in the kitchen. You're not watching it being prepared, so you don't know. Often the preparation in commercial spaces is rushed and the atmosphere is noisy. So where's the sanctity in that? You know, where's the purity in that? Um, so if you can prepare meals at home, do so. Otherwise, just be very cautious when you're eating out. Now, the other thing is uh, it doesn't have to be very elaborate. There are stories in, in, in the Puranas about how even a grain of rice, one grain of rice made with devotion can bring someone to full liberation from birth and death. There's the story of Narada, who is, Narada Muni is a very famous sage in, in the Vedic um, library who travels from planet to planet spreading the glories of chanting and kirtan and the holy names. And um, 
he had a disciple named Vyasa who asked him, how did you get to be such a great sage? I mean, what's your background? What's your story? What's your history? And Narada described that um, he was, uh, in a previous life, the son of a, a maidservant was a serving person and that um, his mother died. She fell ill and died. And Narada, as a young boy, just set out to discover himself and explore the world. And he went through many, many different kinds of territories and um, weather conditions. And it was very arduous at times. And finally, he arrived, he arrived at a forest where sages were holding their sangha. They, were, they had a fire there and they were cooking rice and offering the rice to the supreme being. And Narada arrived and they shared their rice with him. And from that simple act of sharing sanctified rice, uh, these sages facilitated Narada's elevation in his next life to becoming a great, great sage. One other story about prasadam from, um, this one is from the uh, Mahabharata. Um, when the Pandavas were in exile, uh, they naturally had to be careful about eating together because food was scarce and, and so they would have their meals and finish the meals on time and it was usually whatever forest, forest vegetables or herbs they could find and uh, sometimes from neighboring kingdoms they were able to beg some bags of rice. And um, they had finished eating um, and just at that moment... Uh, a great king arrived with 60,000 warriors and uh, said to Kunti, the mother of the Pandavas, um, we are here and you must provide us with hospitality. Otherwise, I'm going to be really angry and it'll be it, the end for you. First, we're going to go take our bath in the river. And when we come back, I expect you to have meals for all of my 60,000 warriors. <laughs> they went off to take their bath, <laughs> and Kunti is there fretting terribly. And um, Krishna comes by, and Kunti is looking miserable, and he asks her, what's, what's the problem? So she explains. Krishna thinks for a moment and says, in the pots, um, is there even one grain of rice left? So Kunti looks in the pots, and sure enough, there's a grain of rice stuck to the side of one of the pots, and that's all that was left from the meal that she had prepared for her family. She gives that one grain of rice to Krishna. And because it was prepared with love and devotion, offered to the Supreme Being with love and devotion, Krishna ate that one grain of rice and was fully satisfied. And if you please, if God is pleased, then all living creatures are pleased. So the king and his warriors bathing in the river all of a sudden felt themselves completely full, stuffed to the gills. And rather than embarrass themselves by not being able to eat another feast, they ran off without even bothering to go back to Kunti. And Kunti and her family were, were saved because of that one grain of, of rice. So what are the prayers for sanctifying a meal? How do you take a simple meal and make it Krishna conscious? Well, 
It can be done just by chanting um, the Hare Krishna mantra or if you have a prayer of your own. In Krishna temples, there is a Bengali prayer before a meal. Uh, I won't chant the whole thing, but it goes. It starts like this: Sharira avijaja, chatendriya tahika, jive phale vishaya shagore, aramaje jivayati, loba moya sudurmati. It goes on, and the translation, roughly, is that we eternal souls somehow have fallen into this material world, and we're stuck in these material bodies which are really kind of inconvenient and ignorant um, and problematic in so many ways. But you, dear Lord Krishna, are so kind that you have provided us wonderful prasadam to help overcome that dilemma. Of all of the senses in this body, the tongue is the most voracious and difficult to control. And you have given us this wonderful prasadam meal with which to conquer over the tongue. So that's the formal prayer that uh, that's recited before meals by, by Krishna devotees. But you can use whatever prayer you have. It, it's the mood that counts. The ideal mood is, um, please accept this. Not thanks for the grub. That, that's not the, the mood. The mood is, you, you've created this wonderful um, bounty, and now we are going to share this and kindly accept it back as an offering of love and devotion. Also, make it an experience. You know, I mean, hospitality is the primordial human art. You know, it's, it's in, in the Bhakti text, it's, hospitality is described as one, of the six, as one of the six exchanges of love. One exchange is you prepare food and offer food to your friend or your beloved. And the second is that you receive food that is prepared by your friend or your beloved. The third exchange of love is being invited to come and visit. And the fourth is that you reciprocate and invite those people to come and visit you. And the fifth is there's an exchange of gifts where you give a gift. And the sixth is where you receive a gift. So those six activities are described as exchanges of love and friendship. So hospitality is really a very important part of spiritual spiritual life. Having meals and, and the right kind of company and, and the right atmosphere is, is, is crucial. Even materially, if you've ever read a restaurant review in a newspaper or a magazine, 50% or more of that review is based not on the taste of the food, but on the ambiance and the quality of the service. So it's a very important part of spiritual practice to create an atmosphere where divinity can appear. It's, it's so powerful that, um, that it can even diffuse a war. Uh, one of the stories that I'm always enamored of in the Mahabharata is when the Kauravas and the Pandavas are fighting to the death. When the sun set, they would dine together. Isn't that an amazing thing that, you know, the, the culture, the, the, the traditional Vedic culture, it's so beautiful and so elegant and so um, uh, mature and intelligent that, um, that people will 
be fighting to the death, and yet they will be able to dine together in the evening. So um, on the practical side, um, by the way, just as a check-in, can everyone still hear me? Are you all there on the line? Alicia, could you uh, unmute just for a moment so that I can make sure that we're all still connected? Yep, I'm still here. I'm okay, here. great. All right, thank you. Uh, so on the on the practical side, I, um, I did want to recommend that you consider creating a diet where it's integrated into your spiritual practice, but if you want to maximize the value, it should also be healthy with the help of really studying the art of of cuisine. I mean, what is the biggest issue in the news today? What is the number one issue in the newspapers and on the cable news channels? Healthcare. You know, the Senate is voting this week on passage of, actually it shouldn't be called health care, it should be called sickness care. Because if, if you study the arguments, no one is really talking about health. What they're talking about is addressing sickness after the fact, and who's going to pay for that. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if somewhere along the line, somebody with some common sense would say, you know, when we're talking about spending so much money on health care for all Americans, why don't we divert some of that money for educating people about how to eat properly? If, if America had a more informed diet, there wouldn't be so much sickness and there wouldn't be so much need for health insurance. Um, health insurance is important, but what makes it so expensive is that it's always after the fact. So that's, here's an area where I think the yoga culture and the bhakti culture in particular has a lot to, to offer. Um, my son, who's on the line with us here, uh, Namamrita, uh, has uh, consulted a, a diet, dietitian whom I also consult. And I found that very useful. And while this may not be right out of the Bhagavad Gita, I thought it was worth passing along to you all here this evening. Um, your body is unique to you. Your body is the product of thoughts, desires, wishes, actions from previous lives. And the composition of your body, both gross and subtle, is unique to you. And what a dietitian does is by looking at blood work, uh, determine and identify where the various levels are in terms of um, the triglycerides and the vitamin content and so on. And the reason why it's important that your diet be crafted to fit your unique needs is that the goal here is to have as much energy as, po as possible for your spiritual life. If you're going to be practicing yoga and offering devotional service, why not have the, the optimal health possible so that that becomes as rich and rewarding an experience as it can possibly be? So a healthy diet is individual. I remember from those early days in Krishna temples, 
the food was all transcendental. It was all prashadam because it was offered to the deities of Radha and Krishna. But in those days, we didn't really understand a lot about, let's say, really informed health practices. So the food was very carb-heavy. It was very dairy-rich. There was a lot of ghee. It was sugar-saturated, a lot of white flour. Um, and it wasn't the healthiest diet. It might have been spiritual, but it wasn't the healthiest. So we have to take responsibility for our well-being materially as well as spiritually. We certainly don't want to neglect that. Okay, so that ends the formal part of this presentation about food and spiritual life. And so now I guess we can unmute everybody and I'll be happy to discuss whatever points you would So if you have something you'd like to say, just say your name and say what you'd like to say. I guess it was such a perfect presentation that nobody had any questions. <laughs> Josh, Josh, same time and wanted to just say hello and how much we enjoyed. Susan, my wife, is here with us listening uh, to this. And, um, and she's someone who has uh, enormous food sensitivity, so... Um, uh, we were sort of relating in our mind that the idea of being very careful is something we've had to do in part because her individualized needs. Mm. And uh, there, it was interesting to hear the uh, interrelationship between what you were saying and sort of what her own health situation, which is all being done, which we really agree with. Sam, what a pleasure to, to hear your voice. Your wife's name is, is Susan, Susan, is that correct? Susan, right. Yeah. Boy, I, um, everyone who's on this call, I just have to tell you, this is one of the great romances of all time here. <laughs> and um, if you get a chance, Sam has a, a, a one-person show, a presentation that he does about this great romance between himself and Susan. And if you get a chance to see it, please do. It's a pleasure having you both on the call with us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Sure. Other thoughts or comments or ideas or questions that someone would like to offer, please do. Um, I have a question. This is, oh, go ahead. This is Alicia. Thanks, Julie. Um, so we want to offer our food to Krishna, but what if there is something um, that would be unacceptable as an offering? Is Can it still be sanctified? All right, just a little background to people on the call who may not be completely familiar with what you're referring to. In the strict bhakti or devotional diet, uh, there is no meat, no fish, no eggs, no garlic, no onions. It's a there's a rather um, strict list of, of elements that are not considered uh, appropriate for offering. I, I mean, the meat I can understand because bhakti is all about causing the least amount of harm possible. Uh, it's a life of compassion. Um, I could always understand fish. I mean, if something wants to run away, we should let it. Um, 
And garlic and onions, I understood, because uh, when you're serving the deity, garlic and onions give off an offensive odor. And the, the protocol in deity worship, or the formal ritual of serving the forms of Radha and Krishna in the temple, is that you should wear, to take a shower, wear fresh cloth, and be as inoffensive in terms of body odor and so on as possible. Uh, we want to be in our very best shape when we approach the deity. So that's a big part of those dietary restrictions. Um, so it, now to your question, if you're, if you're not sure, if you think there may be some onions or garlic or something unacceptable, eggs, whatever it may be, that uh, cannot be offered to in, in formal bhakti tr- practice, um, at least be thoughtful. You know, what, one of the stories that always has stayed with me is that Native Americans who were not generally vegetarian, when they would kill an animal, it was for food, and they would always offer a prayer, whether it's a bison, a buffalo, whatever it might have been. They would say, kindly forgive me for taking your life, and I wish to thank you for sacrificing yourself to feed my tribe, to feed our family. So that's not strictly speaking you know, the vegetarian diet of a bhakti culture, but the thoughtfulness, the reflection, the time to pause and consider the relationship between food and life is very much in keeping with the bhakti spirit. Mm-hmm. So just take a moment and pause. I, you know, my son said something to me earlier today. We were talking about this discussion. I was asking him his advice. And he said that one thing that might get mentioned is how easy it is to fall back into the habit of just eating. It's an easy thing to do. We're very often pressed for time. We don't always remember. And we get into that habit of just eating, grabbing something on the run, you know, fast food, whatever it may be. Um, And that's worth attention. If you can focus on that, just slowing down and making whatever it is you're eating and whenever you're eating it an act of devotion, boy, that you're you're a big step closer to where you want to go spiritually. And it'll change everything. It'll change your mood, it'll change your metabolic rate. It'll change your attitude. You'll, you'll feel better about yourself. You'll be more thoughtful. I mean, it's a, it's a one, when you have a meal, that's a wonderful opportunity to take a break from your material life. Even if it's just a snack, step back away long enough to just reflect, wow, look at this apple. What a miracle that is. <laughs> look at this thing. I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> and inside there's a seed that'll grow a whole other apple tree. <laughs> what an amazing thing that is, you know. And in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna makes that point emphatically. The verse is Patram Pushpam Falam Toyam Gyome Bhakya Prayachate. If someone offers me, Krishna says, with love and devotion, a, even a leaf, 
a leaf, a flower, a piece of fruit, a cup of water. That's so pleasing to me. I'm so happy to accept that. So maybe that'll be, if I hope that's of some help to you, Alicia. Yes, thank you. Was there someone else who would like to say something? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, um, this is Julie. Uh, I was just going to say uh, that I know in other classes you've taught, Joshua, that we have had the topic of food. And I appreciate that so much because of, you know, the, of reminding us to... Um, spiritualize our, our eating and examine our eating habits and the food that we're eating and all of that because it's not, I wouldn't say it's something that's really <clears throat> strong in the culture I grew up with anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, it just helps me a lot to, um, to remember that this is an important aspect of our spiritual practice. Yeah, I mean, it's it was important enough to make it the very second in these monthly discussions. Um, so thank you for that appreciation. Um, the the tragedy of being dissociated from our core selves, who we were before we put on all of the tags and labels and designations of this one lifetime. The tragedy of being cut off from that original, pure, eternal, spiritual self is that we identify with what we can perceive. And what we can perceive always comes up short. And the sensations that go along with that material self, the body and the mind, the intellect, the cultural self, the psychic self, um, they need a different kind of nourishment to be fully satisfied. And it comes from something just as simple as this. When you step back, that humble act of offering a meal unplugs the whole narcissistic mindset of being an embodied soul. That's how powerful it is. We're, we're, we're identified with the, the provisional realities of this life, the, the mistaken relationships of this life, the assumptions that we build on those mistaken ideas of what will satisfy us and what's a fulfilled life. That simple act of, of saying, Hare Krishna, thank you for this. Uh, what a miracle this is. I'm, I'm so grateful to you. That simple act of acknowledging a higher power, something that calls to our deepest self, is the defeat of any material conditioning. There is no material conditioning that's so powerful that it can stand and endure in the presence of the humble, simple act of offering a meal to God. It's that strong. So, yeah, yeah. No, we don't well, really you. do that every day in our culture, so it's good to bring awareness to that. Like, I see when it, when I go into the workplace, like people eat all day, like really large meals, and mm-hmm. I'm aware that 
it's just it's not important to me. Food is just to keep me going. Um, mm-hmm. it, but it's really hard to, like, everywhere you go, every job I've been to, like, it's a really big deal. Like, people order dinner almost at lunch. It's like, wow, it's without a consciousness about it. Um, when I got into yoga practices, I guess it's been 30 years, food became, it's just not that important. Like, I lost, like, another six pounds this year. Like, I don't think of it that way. It's nice when it's shared mm-hmm. with other people on an mm-hmm. event, but um, but even what you're saying, to really bless the food and to have a consciousness of where it came from. The first time, I think, when I really started to think about it is when I went to art school years ago that mm. my art teacher said, like, we, we, didn't, we never really think about it. We shove food in our mouth that, like, everything you do, have a mindfulness and a thought about it. And that's when I really started to think about it like it as you're eating think about what you're doing rather than just shoving it in um, mm. but Very but good. our culture really I mean I, I got that from art school but I think when I'm out in the world it's not really like that like you have to really you know devote yourself to practices about what you're doing because you don't really get that most places you know especially I live in the city and there's food everywhere so you could eat eight times a day, probably, <laughs> but not to think, you know, it's like you see the funny videos on YouTube, you don't think about it, and, and mm-hmm. we should think about it and be really, really grateful yeah. that, you know, we, it's holy, like we have food, mm-hmm. and where did it come from, you know? Yeah, wouldn't it be great if there were some food channel series on spiritual Top chef or something with, you know. Who? That's a great idea. <laughs> um, it really is a great idea because one time I went to an ashram and I was volunteering to work it and I realized, oh, this was everybody, we were chopping and saying prayers and chants as we were chopping and I'm thinking, oh, it was really great to work it because mm-hmm. I really never thought yeah. about it that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then when I told people about it, people told me, you know what, I never really eat food in certain places where the chef didn't have a consciousness or like they really wanted their food to be blessed in that way. And I never Mm. thought about it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And people really have stories about angry chefs and everything. (laughs) Now that you're even thinking of a food network, it probably is a really good idea only because it's something people do probably, um, I guess we say three times a day, but it's probably like six times a day. You know, mm-hmm. depending on one's schedule, maybe small meals. So it does bring you to mm-hmm. holiness if you're going to sure. be, yeah, if you're eating six times a day and you're preparing and you're chopping or, um, yeah, it is a way to bring you I, And the fact that you came to that through art school, I think, is, is very revealing. A, a meal is a work of art. Um, the way... The way uh, an artist trained in his or her artistic ability may look at the world and see something vastly different from the way you know, I, I look at the world. For example, I, I see a tree. An artist may see shapes and colors and relationships and, and perspective and, and um, you know, the way things are in proportion to other their 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 vision is so much more attuned because they're sensitive to the nuances of of what they're seeing as an artist 
I, I think devotion is like that, and, and a meal for someone who approaches it with love and devotion is like that as well. There's attention to the detail that other people don't necessarily give it. One, one thing that I did want to suggest, we can all think about having more communal meals, um, inviting friends. Um, yes. It's, it's something so primordial. You know, it's like what did people do before there were shopping malls? I think they probably had meals together. And why not think about doing that this week? You know, think about making a, one meal this week where you invite friends and maybe they'll even, as you were suggesting, take part in, you know, preparing the meal. And then you can all have that communal experience of 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 sanctifying it, and um, you know, it's a great way to, you know, it's it's a better form of entertainment than movies and television or whatever. Yeah, it's prayer um, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, and it's communing, you know, with friends, and you can, you know, have a wonderful meal and share experiences or whatever. Um, wonderful thoughts and ideas. This is this mm-hmm. is great. Um, we're actually coming to the end of our 45 minutes. These are 45-minute sessions. And um, so I just want to thank you all. Uh, there's something we used to do at Jiva Mukti and that we do in Krishna temples at the end of a gathering like this, and that's offering a prayer called the Vaishnav Pranam. And it goes like this. Banchikalpa turu byascha Kripa Sindhu Bya Evacha Patitanam Vaish Pavanebyo Vaishnavebyo Namo Namaha and the translation roughly is that I I wish to offer my homage to all of you Vaishnavas, servants of the Supreme Being, uh, because your compassion is limitless and you are like the desire trees of the spiritual realm that can fulfill all wishes uh, of the needy souls of this world. So I am so grateful for your company and for having this little bit of time with you today. Thank you all very much. And uh, we'll be together again at our next session. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank Hare you. Krishna to you all. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Have a good evening. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you. Haribo. Thank you for listening to Gita Wisdom. For more information, please visit GitaWisdom.org.